Amen. All right, good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. I am glad to be here. You may be seated. I give you permission now that you've already sat down. So uh, thank you guys for being here. Welcome to Mission Church. Thank you, Brian, uh, for being here. Thank you, Jonathan and Heather, for leading us in worship as well. Um, now we are, we are going, as Brian said, finish up our series on 1 Peter this morning. So if you do not have your Bible already turned there, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. Now if you do not have a Bible, there should be one somewhere close to you in a seat. Feel free to use that one. If you do not own a Bible... Please take that with you as our gift to you. Please take that home, read it, learn it, know it. All right, again, my name is Pastor Justin, and we want to thank you guys for being here, for joining us in our pursuit to worship Jesus above all things. That is what we are here to do. That is what we intend to do with everything that we do this morning, whether it be setting up, tearing down, and everything in between. But that is why we are here. So as we finish up this sermon series, before we get started, I'm going to pray one more time. If you guys would, pray for me. I'm going to pray for you, uh, and we'll get started. Father, we come to you this morning. I come to you knowing I am a sinful man, knowing that I, I have no business uh, preaching the word to these people, and yet you have given me the opportunity. So I pray that you move me aside, that your spirit would stand in my place, and that you would speak these words this morning, that it would not be my opinions or what I think, but it would be your word, your inspired word, speaking through me so that the hearers this morning may be encouraged, may be convicted, may be challenged, and ultimately, maybe they be radically transformed by you to be worshipers of you for the rest of their days. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for this opportunity to gather, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Today, uh, I don't know if you pay close attention to the details of your weekly, but it says we are going to do 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, most of the time it says 1 Peter chapter something versus so-and-so and so-and-so. So I hear you guys already going, man, when are we going to get to lunch if Justin is preaching an entire chapter today? And to that I say, I don't know, bear with me. Now, the good thing is there's only 14 verses in the whole chapter 5 of 1 Peter. So, woohoo, good news, right? The bad news is there are about four sermons contained in those 14 verses, and I'm going to preach all four of them today. So put your seatbelts on, strap in, we're ready to go. Now, as a quick reminder, the theme of this letter has been suffering. He's talked about it throughout, from chapter 1 all the way until now. It's suffering as a Christian. How do we do that well? How do we suffer as Christ would have us to suffer? How do we join in Christ's sufferings? How do we do that without looking like the world and being of the culture, right? So we move from there, which is the last, the last verse of chapter 4. It says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now let's remember that these chapter and verse notations were not in the original letter. It didn't say, okay, now turn to chapter 5 when First Peter wrote it. It was just a continuous letter, and he moves from that verse right into the section that we're going into today. And it looks like in 1 Peter chapter 5, that he is kind of shifting gears. He's still going to talk about suffering, but he's shifting gears to, for a short section of Scripture here, specifically talk to the elders among the readers of the letter, the pastors, the preachers, whatever you want to call them. But he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Now, 
This doesn't mean that all of you out there who aren't elders or pastors in some way should stop listening or stop reading at this point. It has things to say to you as well. Even though it is specifically geared towards elders, there are things in there that we should all follow. But before we get there, Peter says something kind of peculiar here. It says, so I exhort the elders among you, so we see who it's to. And then it says, as a fellow elder, so he's identifying himself also as a preacher of the word. And then he says, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, most places when you read someone claiming to be a witness of something, it is to give themselves authenticity, right? It is to show, look, this is not hearsay information. I'm not hearing this from multiple places. I was there. I saw the death of Christ. I saw the cross of Christ. I saw all of these things. So it is to give credence to what they are about to say. And there may be a hint of that here. Peter may be trying to say, look, I was there through most of this. I saw it with my own eyes. I do agree that some of that is there. But the way he words it is peculiar. Most of the time in Scripture, you don't see the suffering of Christ in this way. You see, I was there for the cross. I was there for the death. I was there for the resurrection. I saw these things. I saw him risen speaking to a bunch of people. I saw this. I saw that. Rarely, if ever, does it say, I was a witness to the sufferings of Christ. But Peter says he was a witness to that. And you wonder, kind of, why is he phrasing it this way? And if you think back to when Christ was suffering, this is the most painful time of Peter's life as well. Obviously, it was painful for Jesus. Obviously, that was the worst part of it. But for Peter, this is probably the hardest time for him to look back on and remember in his own life. Because that is the time when Christ was suffering that he was too much of a coward to say he even knew Jesus, right? Jesus had been arrested. He was being led into Jerusalem to face all of the trials and things that he was going to face. And people were like, hey, Peter, don't you know that guy? <laughs> no, I don't know him. Second time, Peter, are you sure you don't know that guy? No, I, I, I've never seen him before in my life. Third time, he gets a little angry, right? We see him, are you sure you don't know him? Look, I do not know him. I've never met him before. Then the rooster crows and he cries and all that. But why is he bringing this back up? He's like ripping the scab off of an old wound, right? He's, he's remembering back to a time that I, I doubt he wants to remember. And it's at this point, as a side note, I wonder if his friends bring that up to him. Because ladies, I don't know if you know this about us men, but we like to make fun of each other. I don't know why. Like, it's our love language. If I love you a lot, I make fun of you a lot. The better I know you, the more personal I can be about it, right? And people outside of the circle here are like, dude, did he really just say that to him? Oh, yeah, I did. And it's because I love him. But I wonder if, they're, if his friends are like, oh, Peter, you didn't know we had a meeting today? Is that kind of like you didn't know Jesus? Is that the same thing here? I wonder if they bring that up and make fun of him. I like to think that they did, but they were biblical men, and they probably didn't. Side note. But Peter is remembering it himself here. He's bringing it back up himself and saying, look, I was there during the suffering of Christ. I was suffering myself. But look what he says right after that. He says, and a fellow partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter is reminding his readers here that even through our most miserable failures, even through our most egregious sins, when we have completely turned our back on God, like him, we can say we are fully restored into the family of God by God's grace. Not, by, not because I turned around on my own, not because of any of those things, but because of God's grace, I am fully restored into the family of God. And it does not matter what I have done in my past. It does not matter how much of a sinner I was in my past. God's grace is enough to cover that. Because he's speaking to people that are in suffering and persecution times where it probably would be easy for them to do the same thing, right? 
to turn their back on God. I don't need, want any part of this suffering. I don't want this oppression. I don't want this persecution. I'm going to turn the other way. And Peter is saying, even if you do that, if you will repent and come back to the family of God, God will welcome you back into the family of God. And you can also remain a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. That is great news for his readers. And that is even better news for us. When we are struggling, we keep sinning in the same way. It's easy for us to look and say, man, there's no way God could forgive me for this. I'm too bad of a person. I keep messing up. I keep turning my back on Jesus. And yet what Peter is saying here very clearly is that it does not matter. If you will repent, turn, and change your life and give your life to Jesus, he will welcome you back into the family of God or keep you in the family of God as it may be. So then he goes on from there as an encouragement. Look, doesn't matter what you've done. Repent. God will forgive you. But then he goes on to give the instructions on, of the elders on how to lead people through this. So it, again, does not mean that we all stop listening unless we are elders. Because embedded in these commands to the ministers, to the, to the pastors, is a command for you guys. A command for anyone that goes to any church with any pastor. These are the things that you look out for. These are the things that you need to say if your pastor is not doing these things, or if he's doing these in the wrong way, that it is your job to come to him lovingly, not disrespectfully, lovingly and say, I see in Scripture it says these things. Can, can we talk about how I see you handling them? Can, I, can we talk, discuss how I see you going about these things? So what are the instructions? Because I promise you, we want that here at Mission Church. We want you guys to know these instructions and come to us. Love us, honor us, and respect us enough, if we're not doing them right, to come to us and say, hey, you're not doing these right. Again, lovingly, be nice. But what are the instructions? The first one is, shepherd the flock. We see that in verse 2. It says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So shepherd the flock. Simply put, that means lead the church. We talked a few weeks ago about submission. That includes submission to our government. That includes submission to our bosses. That includes submission to your pastors. That includes for wives, submission to your husbands. We're not going to go into that in detail because we did a few weeks ago, but it's in there. It says it. Deal with it. And then, so, this is another form of that submission, right? But it is not, absolutely not, because any pastors are any better than you, any holier than you, any smarter than you, or maybe even more qualified than you. It simply means that God has called certain people to serve in this way. God has called me to serve in certain ways that he has not called others. He has called you, as members of a church, to serve in ways that he has not called others as well. We are all members of the same body working together, doing different things, equal in value, but doing different things. And this is one of the things that he has called the elders to do. Serve the church by shepherding them, practicing oversight for them. Now, even this oversight comes with stipulations, and this is the part where you have to go, is Pastor Eric, is Pastor Justin, or if you're from another church, are my pastors doing these things? It says to do this willingly. So practice oversight, shepherd the flock willingly, not under compulsion. Look, nobody's making me do this job. I understand that in certain jobs you do feel trapped. The salary's too good, the benefits are too good, I can't leave because I don't have another job, all of these things. 
I understand that. Some people are. I, I hope that's not true for anyone in this room. But that, that's not necessarily the case here. It is a willing service, and it cannot be the case if you are a pastor, an elder, a minister, a preacher, whatever you want to call it. That cannot be the case. You must be willingly serving the Lord. I remember about five years ago, the first time I brought up to Pastor Eric that I thought maybe God was calling me into ministry. And he said, I kind of saw this coming. I wasn't going to bring it up on my own. I was going to let you sort that out. It's not my place to call you into the ministry. It's God's place. Um, I can neither confirm nor deny that you are called. That's, again, not my place. But he followed that with something I will never forget that he said. I was sitting in his kitchen. He was moving to Arizona at the time, so it was a big mess. And he said, if you can do anything else, do that. If you can be happy and feel obedient to God by doing any other job on the planet, do that instead. It doesn't matter what it is. If you can be obedient and happy in those two things, or, and be those two things, then do that. He was saying that, hey, listen to that. He was saying, if you can be talked out of pastoring for any reason at all, then go ahead and go another route. If you can be talked out of this job, it takes total commitment to do this job. You can't just halfway do it. You, you might can halfway do it, but you shouldn't halfway do it. God's command here is not to halfway do it. This job is hard. I'm, please hear me. I'm not up here to say, woe is me. Please feel sorry for me. Oh, I'm a pastor. I'm a lowly pastor. That's not it. I'm not saying my job is any harder than any of your jobs. Because, one, I don't know. Because I haven't done most of your jobs, so I have no idea. But it is hard in a different way than most jobs. It's emotionally hard. It is strenuous on your mind. Satan attacks you in different ways being a pastor than he does in other places. It's difficult. It's messy, especially when you really get to know people. Small congregation, I know most of you pretty well. It gets hard when I see you struggle. It gets hard when I see you suffer. It gets hard when I see you fail in some sinful way. It gets hard when I see others sin against you. It, it, it's difficult because I care and I love you guys. But I am committed to God's calling on my life. It's not that this is just so much fun that I can't quit. But I am committed to what God has called me to do. I am willingly, not under compulsion, doing this job. But I'm not going to lie to you and say, oh, every minute has been awesome. You guys haven't ticked me off a single time because that would be a lie as well. Over the past three years, things have happened. I haven't enjoyed every single moment. Pastor Eric would not be able to say that he's enjoyed every single moment. And I would venture to say that every pastor on the planet, if they are completely honest, could look back on the past year and say, I have not enjoyed every single moment of this job. That is not what I'm trying to say. But man, oh man, the upsides of this job are incredible. I love this job. I love you. I love the people of mission. I get to see... God get a hold of hearts in this place and change them and let them and, and get them to really know what the gospel is and go live that out. I get to see transformations of lives right before my eyes. I got to marry one of my longest and dearest friends to his bride earlier, well not earlier, yeah, no, a year ago, year and a half ago. I got to baptize one of my dear friends into the faith a couple of years ago. I get to see people that I don't know yet walk through those doors and know they're about to get slapped in the face with the gospel every Sunday morning, whether they like it or not, because it's going to happen in this place, and that's awesome. So I am willingly doing this job. Pastor Eric would say the same thing. He is willingly 
doing this job. And I continue to use myself and him as examples because this is where we are. This is the church we're in. Please apply this to whatever pastors that you may submit to in your own churches. And hopefully you can say that these things are true of them as well. But it tells us here to do this willingly. And then it tells us not to do it for shameful gain. This does not mean pastors shouldn't be paid. This means that they should not pastor simply and strictly for the pay. Okay, it doesn't mean that they shouldn't get compensated for their work. There are lots of jobs where you can go out, grit your teeth, grin and bear it, get a paycheck, go home for the weekend, recharge, go back. This cannot be one of them. Who would want to come to a church where the pastors were just showing up to get paid? Just going through the motions, not passionate about anything, not really doing anything. Hopefully nobody in here would say that. And yet we see it all over the place. In America mostly, but all over the world. Pastors doing their job, going through the motions, drawing crowds. They may look very successful, and yet you see eventually their true heart comes out. And then lastly, it tells the pastors not to be domineering. We have discussed closed and open-handed issues here many times. Obedient elders must be willing to compromise on things that are not the gospel. They must not have to have their ways all the time. If it goes against their will, so be it, as long as it is not the gospel. We must love the gospel enough to stand up for it. Part of the oversight that it's talking about exercising here is standing up for the gospel, preaching the true gospel, making sure you guys are hearing the true gospel every week and nothing else. We must weed out the wolves and keep the sheep. That is part of our oversight. But in that, we must love people enough to not be the only voice that is heard or the only ideas that are used. We must be willing to hear your voices, to hear your ideas, to hear any and all of those things, and then lovingly lead, lovingly practice oversight through that so that we use the right ideas, we toss out the bad ideas, we hear the right voices, we don't hear the wrong voices, all of those things. That is part of the oversight, but it does not mean that our oversight means we get our way all the time. And these are the things that you must be on the lookout for. No pastor hopefully gets into ministry with the goal of, oh, I'm going to break these commands. I can't wait to be domineering. I can't wait to be in this for shameful gain. I can't wait to be in this under compulsion, not willingly. Nobody gets into ministry doing that, and yet it's a slippery slope. We see a slow fade. We make justifications here. We make a few justifications there. And then eventually we see huge falls, huge sinful errors because nobody checked them on it. Nobody was willing to come to them and say, hey, dude, I'm not sure this is exactly how you're supposed to do it. And he may never see it himself. We all understand that. When we're in the middle of something, we don't see it from an outside perspective. That's why we need different eyes and different ears and you guys coming to us and telling us, that we're doing it wrong, or asking us, are you doing this wrong? That's what community does. That's what community is. We must speak the gospel to one another, and that includes the elders among you. That was sermon number one. It's not everybody that gets four sermons for the price of one, by the way, so y'all should, you're welcome, all right? Sermon number two starts in the next verse. And I call them all sermons because easily these could all have been standalone sermons, but Due to time, Christmas coming, Advent season, we're finishing it up today. So, sermon number two starts in verses five through seven. So, let's read that really quick. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace 
to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I just said a dirty word, and y'all didn't even notice. Because nobody likes to be told they have to practice humility. Nobody likes hearing that. Everybody wants to reward the proud, right? We see these people that have reached the top of whatever field they're in, whether it be politics or sports or any of those things, and yet we reward them for being proud of themselves. We reward them for being confident. We reward them and look up to them because they have reached this point. And yet here it tells us to clothe ourselves in humility. We must wrap our entire lives in humility. It must be a word that describes us as the people of God. C.J. Mahaney in his book called Humility defines humility as honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our own sinfulness. This starts by truly knowing God. We must never lose sight of who He is, how holy He is, what He has done, what He is doing. And the best way to get that picture is in God's Word. We must know what God's Word says. We must be saturated with God's Word. We must immerse ourselves in what God has told us about Himself in His Holy Word. And then, in light of that, in light of His holiness, we humble ourselves toward one another. Just like with pastors, this means not getting your way all the time. This means caring for the needs of others before your own. That's so difficult, isn't it? The world tells us, look out for number one. Look out for yours first. Take care of yourself first. I think of this every time I get on a plane. They do the little speech at the beginning, and they, they say, and probably nobody else really pays attention to this, but they say, if the mask drops, right, put it on yourself before you take care of your kid. Who, what parent's going to do that? Uh, hang on, hang on. I know the wing just fell off. Let me put my mask on. I'll put yours on in a minute. Nobody's going to do that. I don't know why they even tell you, but even embedded in that is a, is a preaching, they're preaching, take care of yourself first. You're number one, everybody else is number two. And yet the scripture tells us that we should put others' needs above our own. This means caring for the needs of others above our own. This means being honest with people. And I know some of you are like, good, because I've been meaning to tell some people something, and now I've got permission to be honest. But it also means allowing people to be honest with you. Allowing people to speak the gospel in your lives when you have seemingly forgotten it, or you're living a different way. This means not causing unnecessary conflict. This means asking yourself, is this really a hill I want to die on, or is this something I can probably let go because it's just not my preference? But it goes a step further in verse 6. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Why? So that at the proper time he may exalt you, or if you go back to verse 5, because he gives grace to the humble. How do we do this? We cast all our anxieties on him. Why would we do this? Because he cares for us. This is not some arbitrary command out of the blue here. This whole book has been talking about how we are going to suffer as Christians. If you are a Christian and you are a true follower of Christ, it's not if you suffer, it's when you suffer. You are going to suffer. Now that may be to varying degrees. It may not be as hard for some as for others. Some of it may last your entire life. Some of it may last a day. But you are going to suffer as a Christian. So how can we get through these times? And display God's glory. Display the gospel of Jesus Christ most in our suffering. How do we do that? We cast those anxieties upon Him. This involves trusting God in His wisdom. That He is doing what is best for you. Why? It says right here. Because He cares for you. 
We must know that. We must see that God cares for us and accept the ups along with the downs, accept the highs along with the lows. When we are joyful even in our suffering because we know that He cares for us, we can rest in the promise that He will lift us up in the proper time. It says it right there, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. When is the proper time? I have no idea, so don't ask. I do not know. Again, it may be tomorrow. It may be when Jesus comes back. I do not know. But at the proper time, in his timing, he will exalt us. He will lift us up. And when we are in the throes of a struggle, that is hard to remember, isn't it? We think, God has just completely left me alone. I don't know if it's because of my sin or just because of the situation, but God has seemingly just left me out in the cold. He does not care for me, and we must Trust in the promise that at the proper time, which we cannot know, he will lift us up for his glory and our good. And it takes humility to do that, to trust God when we do not have all the answers. Admitting that we don't have all the answers takes humility in and of itself, right? I'm a dude. I want to have all the answers for everything. But it takes humility to say, I don't have all the answers, but I know who does. God does. And even though... He's doing things that I don't understand. I'm going to trust in the promise that he cares for me. We exercise humility by allowing him to care for us, get this, in ways that we would not care for ourselves. We practice humility by allowing him to care for us in ways that we would not do ourselves. Newsflash, God is not always going to do it the way you think it should be done or that you would do it if you were in charge but it tells us that his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, right? So when we can't see the end result, he can, and he knows what's coming. And because he cares for us, he is carrying us through to that end in his way, in his timing. And we, this knowledge, knowing that he is caring for our needs, he is providing for us, he is supplying our needs, frees us up to care for the needs of others. So this command comes full circle. Why can we care for the needs of others before our own? Because we know that God is taking care of us. So we don't have to look out for ourselves all on our own. We don't have to provide for ourselves because God is doing that for us. God is caring for us, and therefore, I can care for your needs before mine. I can give in to your preferences without having to have my own. The thing is, is it tells us here that not only does God oppose the proud, but he also gives grace to the humble. When we exercise humility by focusing on God's holiness and our own sinfulness, we are actually putting ourselves what Matt Chandler would call under the faucet of God's grace. We are placing ourselves to where we are in position to receive more grace from God. Not because we've earned it. Not because of works and he's rewarding us. Oh, you're being humble. Here's some more grace. Here you go. It is just the way he has set it up. The harder we lean against God, the harder he pushes back. He's never toppled over. The harder we lean into him, he will hold us up even stronger. And that is God's grace. But here's the deal. The other part that we don't like to hear, we love hearing that, right? Oh, if I'm just kind of humble, God will take care of me. God cares for me. That is great news. And it is. But he also says here that God opposes the proud. And if that doesn't convict you in this moment, it's because you're lying to yourself and saying you don't struggle with pride when every person in this room, including myself, who will do struggle with pride the rest of today, we all struggle with pride. All day today, I'm going to be like, did people get this? Did they hear this? Were they really listening? Were they asleep? Did I do a good job? Did I say uh too many times? Da, 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 da. All day long. 
it t- it'll take up the rest of my day. I'm just confessing to you guys now, hoping that you will show me grace and allow me to be the sinful man that I am. But I have to stop doing that. I have to, God opposes that. And it may, be, it may seem that I'm being humble when I say, well, I, did, I didn't really do that good of a job. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, right? So it's, it's pride that I'm even asking the question, did they get this? It's not up to me whether you get it. It's up to the Holy Spirit in this place, opening your ears, opening your hearts. I could give you the best sermon that has ever been preached. I don't know if I could or not, but if I did, it wouldn't matter if the Holy Spirit wasn't here doing anything. Or I could give the worst sermon, Now I can do this, the worst sermon that you've ever heard. But if the Holy Spirit is here moving, we may see thousands of conversions because it is not up to me. We all struggle with pride in one form or another. This is not always arrogance. Now, it can be. Arrogance is obviously a form of pride. We see those people from a mile away. Donald Trump, Kobe Bryant, any sports athlete that's really good is usually some form or fashion arrogant that either draws you to them or repels you away. It just kind of depends. Um, but C.J. Mahaney defines pride in his book, same book. He defines pride as when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence on him. You see how these two definitions of humility and pride are just diametrically opposed. They're completely opposites. One is recognize God and his holiness. The other is trying to be God yourself. One is recognizing our sinfulness and our utter inability to be holy or good. The other is refusing to acknowledge that we even need God. That's the difference between humility and pride. And we all struggle with pride. Pride in all of its forms is a huge, huge deal. It tells us that God actively opposes the proud. It doesn't say he opposed the proud. This is an active opposition, current, present, right now. He actively opposes the proud. Why is that? That's really strong language. If you look up pride anywhere in the Bible, it's never good. It never talks about it in a good way, right? It never says, well, you can be proud a little bit here and God will let it go. It's God hates the proud. He hates haughty eyes. He hates people who are arrogant. He hates the proud. Why is this such a big deal? John Stott says that pride is more than the first of the seven deadly sins. It is itself the essence of all sin. It appears that it was the very first sin that it was ever committed. This is pre-fall, pre-Adam and Eve. Isaiah 14, 13 and 14, it says, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. This is an account of the devil, Lucifer, trying to be God, right? This is when he was cast out of heaven and where he is now. This is how he became Satan. This is how he became our greatest enemy. Is because he said these words, I will make myself like the Most High. And this is what we are saying when we are proud. This is what we are saying when we are prideful in what we do. Like I said before, it's not just arrogance. It can take many, many forms. It follows a path. It's a slippery slope. You make a small justification here. The Bible has much to say about pride, and it tells us how you get to where you are. We, sometimes we see someone make an enormous mistake, right? We see a pastor who's got a huge church. He's very successful, and then all of a sudden, oh, you've been having an affair for 10 years. Great. That sounds awesome. And we wonder, we go, how did, how did he get there? Because I guarantee you, no one that has ever had an affair in their life has ever woke up that morning and went, I'm going to ruin my marriage today. I've never lusted. I've never looked at another woman or man. I've never done any of these things. 
Today's the day. Having an affair. It's a slippery slope. It gets from here to there. Someone steals tens of thousands of money of dollars. They steal all this money, and you wonder, how did we get here? He made justification after small justification, and then it got to where he felt, this is what I should do. It wasn't that he just woke up that day and made that decision. And we see this throughout Scripture. Unchecked pride leads to these things. The first sign is prayerlessness. Psalm 10, 4, it says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All of his thoughts are, there is no God. Basically, it means, I got this. I don't need to pray. I don't need to ask God for anything. I can take care of this myself. That is pride in its essence. I got this. Don't need you. I'll take care of this. This is a small issue. I don't want to bother God with it. Second sign is it leads to conflict, right? Proverbs 13.10, where there is strife, there is pride, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. So when you start thinking, I can take care of this myself, what does that mean? It means I have to have my way because this is how I think it should be done. If I'm trying to take care of an issue myself and you're not helping, it's going to cause conflict because I think I've got it under control instead of trusting in God caring for us. Then that will lead to false boasting or thinking, Look, just do it my way because I, I know the right way. So, Proverbs 20, verse 6. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love. So he proclaims that he's a great man. He proclaims that he's got this. But a faithful man who can find. So we have to be aware that our own sinfulness is what is leading to this to start with. Then it gives, leads to false security. Isaiah 47, 10. You felt secure in your wickedness. So you start sinning and you, hey, I can do whatever I want. God's not going to smite me. He's fine. He's not, he's, he doesn't even see this. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. That sounds exactly like we just read in the other chapter in Isaiah, right? Aspiring to be God. I am, I am, and there is no one besides me. Then that leads to shame and disgrace. Then you start making mistakes. Proverbs eleven two. when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Self-explanatory. And then the great fall. Then the great sin issue that we see and read about in the newspapers or on the websites. Proverbs 18, 12. Before destructions, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. It sounds exactly like what we're seeing here. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Now, while I find it very important to live a life as closely to this picture of humility as we can, it is not just so we can pat ourselves on the back and say, look at me. I'm, hum I'm humble. I'm so humble and proud of it. You guys should be very jealous of how humble I am. That's not it. The key here is that our humility makes us more like Christ. It preaches the gospel to the world. Because Christ was the picture of humility. Philippians 2, 5 through 9. Have, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Because of this, it tells us if we are humble, that God will exalt us, right? Said the same thing about Christ. We are trying to be more like Jesus in every Thing that we do. We must always be striving to be more Christ-like, and the only one that was ever worthy of being proud was the epitome of humility. He emptied himself. He was God, and yet he came in the form of a man. He was the only one worthy of praise, and yet he emptied himself to be killed by a bunch of sinful men. He was humbled to the point of death, 
And we must be Christ-like, and we must give up our desires. We must be willing to be humble in the same way, because that is what paints the picture of the gospel. And that is sermon number two. So let's see what he said. The next little section here, he tells us to clothe ourselves in humility. Then let's read verses 8 through 11. It says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring, roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Be watchful. I remember a few years ago, this was before Stephanie and I were married, we'd be on the phone or something, and she'd be like, yeah, I think I'm going to go for a run. And I'm like, it's 1130 at night. Like, what are you doing? She, she's weird. She doesn't do that anymore. But she'd be at completely dark. She'd go run in the most dangerous part of anywhere. didn't matter. And, oh, I'll be fine. But I would always tell her, just be careful. Keep your head up. Look out for weirdos. They're everywhere. If anybody offers you any candy, say no. Especially if they're in a white van with no windows. Just don't take it. I know it's good. Just don't take the candy, okay? So I would tell her this, mainly because I knew I wasn't going to change her mind anyway. That's still true today. But I knew I couldn't talk her out of it. So instead I would say, be watchful. Peter is saying the same thing here. The devil is out and about at all times. We can never let our guard down. Some tra translations even say, stay awake here. We see this same command in Matthew when Jesus is telling him to, his disciples to always be prepared for the return of the Son of Man because you don't know when it's going to happen. And then he uses an analogy and he says, if a man knew when his house was going to be broken into, he would stay awake all night and not let it happen, right? We are always in danger of our house being broken into. We must stay awake because the devil is prowling around waiting for us to fall asleep at the wheel, waiting for us to put it on cruise control and pridefully say, I got this. I don't have to struggle against that sin anymore. It's not even as tempting as it used to be. We're, I'm impervious to that. Temptation holds no bearing on me. I am, I am good to go. That, that's when the devil wants to swoop in and tempt you with that very sin that you think you've got under control and you're not paying attention to anymore. But if we are being watchful, we will see these things coming. I think of movies where before they had technology, what would they do? They'd just put somebody really high up in the air, right? On a mountain, in a tower, whatever. Hey, just see as far as you can with your own eyes and tell us when someone's coming. So when he, would, he or she would be up there and they saw the enemy coming from afar, they wouldn't go, hey, there they are, cool. I'm going to take a nap now. No, he would come down from his tower, run through the town. They're here, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming. Everyone get ready, please, please, please get ready so that they would be prepared and ready for anything that may come their way. This is how we must be. We become distracted by the things of this world, right? We become distracted by the pursuit of happiness or the pursuit of success or things or money or sex or pride or any of those things, right? We get very distracted by these things and we don't even see the enemy coming from another angle or we don't see them coming from straight ahead because we think pridefully that we've got it under control. Allowing the desires and the things of this world to distract us from the battle. Then we let our guard down then we start towing the line, right? Is this too far? What about this? What about, is this really sinning, or am I just on my way to sin, and I'm cool right here? And that's when the devil's going to swoop in and say, you let your guard down. This is exactly what I wanted. Peter tells us here to do the same thing. He tells us to always be watchful. But it does not say to be fearful, does it? It doesn't say 
be watchful and be scared of the devil. We don't have to be afraid of the devil because we know that Jesus has already defeated him. The Jesus that is inside of us is the same Jesus that defeated him on the cross. We don't have to run and hide and shut the doors and lock the windows from the devil. I'm not saying you should never run from your sin. But what does it tell us here? It says, resist him, firm in your faith, because we know that we are not alone. We know that not only is Jesus with us, but our brothers and sisters in Christ are suffering all over the world the same way, and we stand arm in arm with all of them, resisting the devil, fighting the battle together. James 4, 7 tells us to resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He may be a roaring lion when he's on the prowl, but he turns into a little kitten when you start standing up against him, right? He, out, I didn't know you were going to do that. I'm going to go this way. And then he'll try to attack you from another way, right? He's still a roaring lion because then he comes back around and tries to attack you in a different way. But we know that he will flee because God has told us, I'm with you. I will make him flee. It's not you. You're not so intimidating. I am intimidating and I am with you. God is ensuring the victory, not us. And this is why we must practice humility we must be humble enough to know that we stand absolutely no chance against the devil on our own. But confident in who it is that is with us and that all we have to do is allow him to fight the battle for us. We cast our anxieties on him and let him fight. When we are struggling, when we are suffering, when we are persecuted, when we are oppressed, we lay that anxiety on him and we allow him to fight for us because he is the one that can ensure the victory. And we know that we are not alone because our brothers and sisters are with us all across the world. And then we see the promise of God following that. So we resist him, firm in our faith. And because of the grace we receive, this is verse 10. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. So because of the grace we have received when we believe in Jesus, through the suffering that God is bringing us through, and by us practicing humility, relying on Jesus to fight the battle for us, and resisting the devil, God promises in verse 11 to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. That is good news. And that is a whole other sermon, but I thought five might be pushing it, so we're going to stick with four. But this is the promise of God, that if you will do these things, if you will humbly submit to God and allow Him to be the one fighting for you and not saying, I got this, I'll take care of this, I'll fight this battle. But resist the devil by being humble and relying on him. He will fight for us, and then he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. And then we move on to sermon number four. In verse number 12, this is Peter's wrapping up his letter, and he says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Peter tells us that the whole point of this letter was to exhort the readers and declare that all of this is grace. So let's get this straight. Five chapters worth of, hey, you're going to suffer. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be hard. The devil's coming. Resist him. You will suffer. It's not if, it's when. Is really a book about grace. That's what you're telling us, Peter? You're telling us this, what you've just described is grace, because it does not sound like grace. And Peter is saying, absolutely, because all of the promises of grace we see here and throughout Scripture, we can do what he tells us in verse 12b, and that is to stand firm. 
That is wrapping up what Peter is saying. It's like the last thing he wants you to read. Hey, it's going to be tough. But the whole point of this letter is to know that even in that, that is the grace of God preparing you for the next battle, preparing you for the next battle so that you may stand firm in Christ. We see this command in Scripture over and over and over again. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 17. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, rely on Jesus. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. So it's told, we're told to stand firm, then we have a promise. Isaiah 46, 8 and 9. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to your mind, you transgressors. Remember the form, former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. So we're told to stand firm and then we are told a promise that he is God and we are not. Galatians 5, 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. We have, we're told again, stand firm because God has purchased your freedom. He has given you something that you could not earn on your own. All you got to do is stay in it. Stand firm in that. 2 Thessalonians 2, 15 through 17. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work. Again, we are told to stand firm and then we are given a promise that God is going to comfort us. He has given us our eternal hope through grace, so allow that to comfort your hearts when you're in suffering. That is God's grace. We see in all of these exhortations to stand firm a promise of God that follows. A promise that God is with us. God is fighting this battle. I am God and there is no other. It doesn't say you are awesome, you'll fight this battle and win. It says I am God, rely on me, stand firm in me. I am fighting the battle. Through the grace we receive by our belief in Jesus, we will be delivered. We will receive salvation. But this is the only way. Some of you in here may not have a relationship with Jesus, and it's telling us to stand firm in something you do not have. But I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, you can come to Christ today. You can rely on Him. You can humbly submit in your own sinfulness and in His holiness and say, I can't do this on my own anymore. I submit to you. I'm going to lean harder on you because I know you will push me back and hold me up, and you will fight this battle for me. I'm struggling here. But you can have that today. You can have this ability to stand firm and resist the devil today. If you are in here and you already do have a relationship with Jesus, I just want to encourage you. Because this is the promise we have that our standing firm will not be for nothing. We see throughout Scripture and especially in 1 Peter, it will be hard, absolutely. It's not going to be fun. Will you get tired? Absolutely. Will you get weary? Yes. It will cause us to question. It may cause us to doubt in places. But if we stand firm in our faith, the promises of God tell us that it will all be worth it. Let's pray. Father, we just come to you this morning thanking you that you are God and that we are not. Even when we do not see the end result and have no idea what you're doing, we can trust in the fact that you have promised us that you care for us that we can cast all of our anxieties upon you and we can let them go because we are not fighting the battle. You are fighting the battle for us. We can stand firm in our faith as we have studied through the past 12, 13 weeks that suffering is coming our way. Thank you for the promises that it will not overtake us. 
that it will not take us down because you are the one withholding or holding us up. You are the one standing firm for us and in us. And I pray this morning that everyone in this room would do that. They would lean more on you, that they would humbly submit that they are sinful men and women, that they cannot fight this battle on their own. They've tried and tried and tried. And I just pray that all of us in here would admit that we have suffered in the sin of pride for too long and that we would humbly submit to you so that we can stand firm. We love you, Jesus. We thank you that salvation is in your hands and not our own. We thank you that you are God alone and not us. We thank you that you are God and there is none like you. And as we worship you further this morning through song, I just pray that you are glorified in this place. That everyone in here understands that it is not about Mission Church. It is not about us individually, but it is about you. You are the one that is great. You are the one that is worthy of glory. You are the one worthy of praise. And I just pray that every heart in here would be attuned to that. So that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Please stand with us as we worship.